and welcome or welcome back to the BMJ Innovations podcast. I'm Dr. Helen Saran, one of the associate editors at BMJ Innovations, and I'm your host. We hope you'll like, subscribe, review the podcast wherever you are listening to it and do share on your own networks because we'd like as many people to hear it as possible. BMJ Innovations is grateful to WISH, the World Innovation Summit for Health, for making this podcast series possible. In this first series, we're bringing you interviews from some of the world's top leaders in innovation. I hope you've enjoyed the interviews so far. Do go back and listen if this is your first visit. Coming up today, it's my conversation with Louise Thwaites, who I spoke to over Zoom back in June this year, 2021. She was visiting the UK, but is now back in Vietnam, where she works leading innovations research in critical care for the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit there. I worked with Louise earlier this year on a supplement about healthcare innovation in Vietnam, which is linked to in our show notes. In this podcast, we talked about working with engineers, women's careers in research and innovation, and what the priorities are in low and middle income settings for research and innovation in critical care. But we started by talking about how she got to Vietnam in the first place. Do you want to just start by introducing yourself uh, and telling me a bit about your current role? Yeah, sure. My name is Louise Thwaites and currently I am based at something called the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And I'm a clinical researcher there leading a team of mainly Vietnamese scientists, clinicians, looking at particularly around innovations in critical care in Vietnam. Perhaps if I could take you back to maybe why you went into medicine in the first place and then maybe why you chose critical care. <laughs> why did I go into medicine? I, th- I think I was, I've always been interested in the body, how it works and science, that side of things. So I did an extra BSc year studying physiology and particularly neuroscience aspects of that. And that was also my first little taste of research. I was doing a project actually on pain and itch with Professor Stephen McManus. He now is in St. Thomas's. And, and, and I guess I got, I got a taste for clinical research there. Now, I've definitely taken quite an unconventional career path. So I started with broad medical training and then went into anaesthetics that way. Actually, initially with the intention of doing either critical care or or pain medicine. And then my husband and I were junior doctors and he was interested in infectious diseases and I was interested in anaesthetics and critical care. And at, at that point, we also just wanted a bit of an adventure, which is how we started writing around to places to see if they would take us for a year or so. And we happened to send our CVs to somebody called Professor Nick White at Oxford. Nick White then passed our CVs on to Jeremy Farrow, who was running the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit, and who, unbeknownst to us, was luckily looking for someone to run a project and TB and also someone with some intensive care knowledge to run a project on tetanus in Ho Chi Minh City. And so that's how we ended up in Vietnam, essentially, luck and and sending our CVs to the right person at the right time. So we went out there in 2000 
initially for about a year and ended up for staying for over four years in the end. And so presumably then you came back to the UK? I came back to the UK. I actually then took, I said I had a slightly unconventional career. I actually did a qualification in musculoskeletal medicine and osteopathy. Then several years working, doing actually very low-tech medicine, way a long way away from an intensive care unit. You're now back in Vietnam. When did you get back into critical care and, and the research around that? Well, I guess the answer is I never really left it in terms of the tetanus work either because I came back here, but there was still a huge amount of work that was ongoing in Vietnam. So some of that was still ongoing. Um, But essentially, in terms of the research that I do and expecting, particularly around the tetanus work, going back, that we'd be working in a very different area of critical care and actually being horrified really when that there was still so much tetanus in Vietnam and so many cases of tetanus in the ward so we started looking at again ways we could improve outcome from tetanus and the mortality rate for the patients in our hospital and and particularly in our ICU are very low but um, the patients still have to stay three or four weeks in the intensive care unit so they end up with all sorts of other problems so Mm -hmm. things like Hospital-acquired pneumonia is common. And also disability. We started being interested in long-term outcomes until recently. I think it's true of a lot of critical care units around the world, really. People have been concerned with survival only rather than quality of life. And I think particularly in low-middle-income countries, that's even more true. And so so we actually started trying to follow up some of these patients three months, six months, a year down the line to see how they were doing after long stays in intensive care units. Just let's focus on the intensive care units sort of in a low and middle income country. I think the first thing to say is depending even within a, a country, there's a lot of variation. So, so some of the units in Vietnam are incredibly well equipped and some are less well equipped. I think resources is always an issue not only physical resources of what equipment is there, but the other thing that needs to be taken into account very much is is who's paying for the treatment and how are they paying for it. So universal healthcare coverage is increasing. And in many countries, though, that's still quite inadequate and families are expected to pay a lot of these bills. And that's a huge burden, I think, not just on families, but also on the staff looking after the patients because they're aware of these things and and there's some often very difficult decisions about treatment that have to be made. I think what we used to in in high-income countries in critical care is perhaps one nurse looking after one or two patients, whereas in low-middle-income countries that would be commonly one nurse looking after four, six, eight or even more patients. So that's a huge burden, particularly on the nursing staff. And and doctor doctor patient ratios again very very variable. You're particularly interested in innovation. What what is the role of innovation in a critical care unit, particularly one in a low low middle income country? Obviously, there's the very very high tech stuff. But what's the interest in in innovating in low middle income countries, and how can it be useful globally? Yeah, well, I th- I think our our interest stems from the fact that. What we see in many low-middle-income countries 
is the attempt to really recreate high-income country critical care units. So a lot of staff, a lot of equipment, just looking after one patient. And I think even in high-income countries, we know that that's a huge burden on the healthcare system itself. It's very expensive. And I think, as unfortunately this pandemic shown us, it, it, it isn't very scalable uh, beyond a, a few specialised centres. And so, so our interest in innovation in critical care unit really has been trying to kind of use technology and innovation for an alternative model of critical care, if, if you like. I think in the past, a lot of the approach has been to come up with one technological innovation in a high setting, think this is appropriate for low resource setting, send it out there, trial it briefly, tell everyone how well it worked and go home. And I think genuinely being there, understanding the problems and, and working together as well as you can throughout all the stages is what I would like to see as we go forwards. And also really understanding that there are some excellent innovators in these countries and, and just them being able to advance their solutions that they're already beginning and draw on other expertise from around the world, I think is really important. And I think the new technologies, particularly we're interested, are, are around wearables and using AI type tools to not only analyze data, but support clinical decision making. But I think also importantly, to support the staff and, and to be responsive to what they want to do and, and what the patients need and also want as well. And so how do you go about putting the patient's requirements in the middle of, of what you're doing? Obviously, critical care, you kind of think, well, it doesn't matter what the patient thinks because we, we know what we need to do. But getting their views and their understanding yeah. of the situation is really tricky, isn't it? It's really tricky, but I, I think it is really important. And, and also in terms of innovation and making something sustainable, we know it's vital, actually. You know, good design needs patients' views and end users' views really taken into account. And I'll, maybe I'll give you a little example in terms of COVID recently as we've been using some wearable monitors in patients with COVID and just informally chatting with the patients afterwards. A lot of them said they, they actually felt much happier having this wearable monitor with them and they felt more connected and they felt more supported and that they felt a little bit more in control of, of what was happening to them. So that was actually quite positive feedback. Yes, that's that's really interesting. I'm especially interested in the sort of parallels between user-centred design in technology and patient-centred care, which I think are two sort of streams of thought that have been happening in parallel, but really only in a few places coming together with great effectiveness. Is that something you've seen as well? Yeah, I think it's, I, th I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we're, we're all much more aware that patient-centred care should be taken into account at every kind of stage of at least the research pro process when we're evaluating new innovations, but actually bringing them together can be quite difficult. And I think particularly with technology, there's a concern that they may be conflicting in that, you know, what makes a nurse and doctor's life easier may reduce hands-on 
patient time and that may lead to a, a much more negative experience for that patient so I think evaluating those two things together and uh, and importantly evaluating them at all is is really vital as we go forward with these projects and I guess that other thing you've just brought up about the translation from research into practice but also you've always worked in a very multidisciplinary environment do you think we're getting better globally at, at working together across specialties and, and do you think COVID's helped that? I think we are yes I mean, I can only really think of examples I've been directly involved in, but I think so. I think there's a a genuine openness to be involved with people from other countries much, much more readily. And I think, you know, COVID has proven how interconnected and interdependent we are and and that the multidisciplinary initiatives are really vital for most most things to succeed you know for I, I guess we've been involved in a lot of collaborations with engineers and I've, I found that really interesting working with engineers uh, they work in a very different way and sometimes that's quite challenging and I'm sure we challenge them in the way that we work in in conventional clinical research yeah do you want to just say a little bit more about how engineers brains are trained <laughs> yeah. to work versus well, I, I guess what, one of the things that our team found very challenging early on with engineers was the iterative design process, which, of course, is fundamental for development of technology and, and allowing flexible and rapid change and adaptation. But, of course, in the clinical setting, that doesn't work very well. We like to have a protocol. We must put these protocols through various ethical committees and particularly if we're using new devices and new technologies there are extra layers of regulation we need to make sure that we're compliant with and so very very small changes to designs of for a piece of equipment for example means a huge amount of extra paperwork cost and time for our, our from our side so we have to be We've learned a lot, I think, in terms of how we design the projects in the first place and allow lots of stages where we can make these these small changes without necessarily having to redo the whole procedures and regulations. And hopefully also our engineering collaborators understand the limitations if, if you're putting things through clinical trials and try and do a lot of that iteration before it goes onto people really yeah yeah do you think the research ethics process as it currently stands in terms of best practice is ready for the amount of sort of technical innovation that is is coming I think it's it's getting ready it's aware that that's happening and I think that it's really important that we remain focused on that we are fortunate in Vietnam that we have some very well thought out regulations and and the government is understanding the need to adapt those as technologies come in. I think in low middle income countries as a whole, again, it's very variable. So it's where you, where you are, what those regulations are. But I think, yeah, at the moment, a lot of people are 
having to adapt what is there for technologies and that particularly some of these iterative processes really challenge that i guess i guess the software and the algorithms is is the area that people are most interested in talking about and in in most countries I, I, that that is still largely unregulated yeah so innovation can sort of butt up against traditional clinical research processes how do you make sure that you doing both, (laughs) that breakthrough ideas can still break through while still being rigorously evaluated? Yeah, we absolutely have to make sure we rigorously evaluate things. We have to make sure that there are real clinical benefit down the line. Um, I think there are a lot of examples of things that have been used in a very small group of patients or and never really go into clinical practice because the real benefit is is unlikely to be large. How do we do both? I think multidisciplinary work is really important for that because it does allow you to be involved from the clinical side very early on in the design process and therefore hopefully eliminates a lot of a lot of the early iterative mistakes or, or, or that, that would have happened. And vice versa with the engineers being understanding the clinical situation early on um, allows them to see a lot of technical solutions and possibilities that that are probably not obvious to the clinicians and the staff on the wards day to day. Mm. Can we talk a little bit more about being a woman in science and innovation? Yeah. (laughs) What's that like? I would say in terms certainly of early career, I was very lucky. I had a lot of supervisors and mentors, all of whom were men, actually, who were very supportive, came up with some very creative thinking about careers and, and how we could do things that, that have enabled us to, to get to this point. You know, we have three children and, and I think a conventional career path would have been quite quite difficult for me. I've been very lucky in the fact that I've been supported by something called a Wellcome Trust Career Reentry Fellowship that's designed for anybody who's had a break from research to get back into research. And that certainly has enabled me to restart a lot of the work in Vietnam, which is fantastic. What I have noticed working actually in the more multidisciplinary environment is how particularly proactive a lot of the engineering organizations are at promoting women in research in engineering and careers generally in engineering. Uh, They probably started a bit further behind a while ago, but it's noticeable that they're very active advocates for women's careers that way, I think. One of the things I do as well in Vietnam is we have a group looking at advancing careers of women in science in, in our unit in Vietnam and also working with other groups internationally now, particularly around gender equality in research and low middle income countries, because I think the discrepancies there can be even larger. We've done some work with our female staff, understanding the barriers to career progression in science generally, would they like more flexible time? Would they like to work from home? And and 
a large number of them said absolutely not that is not helpful for their career progression at all because often they're living in the context of an extended family they haven't got good internet at home they haven't got air conditioning and and expecting them to be at home for longer in the day was definitely detrimental to their careers you mentioned briefly mentoring earlier mentoring yeah Yeah. you'd had some really good mentors early in your career do you think that was important and can be important throughout people's career? Yeah, I think so. And I think people often are a bit nervous of formal mentorship, but I think mentorship can come in many shapes and forms. We have actually in Vietnam now started a formal mentorship program matching scientists from from very early in their careers to really quite late in their careers with mentors either of their choosing or if if they want some suggestions ones we can find and so far our feedback's been really positive from that but I think a a variety of mentors and networks is really important Um, forming networks of your peers early on in your career can be really helpful for later and again I think until relatively recently, I think women have often been disadvantaged in that if they haven't been able to travel so much, they haven't been at the meetings and, and perhaps just generally more reticent in in that kind of thing. And in fact, actually, again, when we talked to some of our staff in Vietnam, training in networking was felt to be important mm-hmm. and, and perhaps coming from different cultural backgrounds, that, that could be more relevant people may not be used to how to network in an international environment for example compared Mm. to a local environment yeah and I think maybe COVID is providing some positive solutions to some of those international collaboration and networking things by by taking everything online by force I (laughs) I think COVID is interesting at the moment I think there are some concerns that in the short term particularly for women's careers, it's not been very helpful because women have been at home much more likely to have taken on more of the domestic work, the the homeschooling, the caring responsibilities, and at least in the short term have been less productive in terms of research outputs. But I, yeah, my hope is that long term, you know, we have changed the way we work undoubtedly, um, particularly in an international environment and that women will benefit from that. Huge thanks to Louise for her time and insights. Do follow the links in the show notes to find out more about the fascinating work she's involved with. Next week, we're off to a very high income setting, the United States, and talking to Rajesh Agarwal about his career that has taken him from educational researcher in London to health tech dissemination expert at Panda Health in the US. If you're interested in hearing why and how great ideas do and don't catch on for healthcare systems, then this is a must listen. And please help us reach more innovating ears by liking, subscribing, reviewing and sharing wherever you get the chance. BMJ Innovations is grateful to the World Innovation Summit for Health, WISH, for making this podcast series possible. It was produced and presented by me, Helen Serrana, for BMJ Innovations and is editorially independent. If you have any comments or questions, do get in touch via social media or info.innovations at bmj.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.